0: Hello and welcome to the Voice Sector Podcast. Today I'm here with Saskia once again, and we're talking about um, Black Lives Matter in the arts and whether things have actually really changed. So how are you doing today, Saskia?
1: I'm good, thanks, Sarah. How are you doing?
0: Pretty good. Weather, muggy, but Mm. it is, yep, that's how it is, I guess. (laughs) Typical. Britain continues to be Britain. Yeah. So yeah, I'll fill in with some kind of general context to get us going. So, George Floyd was killed on May 25th, from the time this podcast comes out, is two and a half to three months. Yeah. Since then, there's been a a resurgence of the already already existing Black Lives Matter movement, into the public eye, at least. And this movement kind of broadened out beyond just specifically police violence and police killings, Mm -hmm. and moved more broadly into talking about the ways in which a lot of the structures in society are racist, and a lot of the systems in society are racist there's just been a lot of discussions across things and now as kind of the immediate media hubbub has kind of cooled off we're going to be looking at what's left and whether people have committed to those diversity things that they said they would do and like whether the black squares have been followed up with actual action.
1: Those infamous black squares. (laughs) I think especially like you know since May there's been so much that's gone on and so not even so much that's gone on but so much that's been promised and i think it's going to be interesting to see how even obviously it's not so easy to just bring policies in and have them you know change overnight but whether those movements have actually been made to actually you know make for a better future
0: and i think um there's a lot of different spheres which is with this is being talked about so for example one of them is in the media And one specific example, which has come up recently, is on the BBC, where the N-word in its entirety was used on daytime television twice in a week, which got a lot of people incensed about the way in which, on the one hand, we're talking about this anti-racism, and on the other hand, you're saying a word which is deeply triggering to a lot of black people for no real reason. I mean, there's not really a good reason for BBC to have someone saying it, but for no good reason and the two people saying it were both white and it was like why it's
1: it's just so bizarre because this isn't some i don't know the last time that there was one of these incidents where that word was said and it didn't get bleeped out whether it was you know on a live performance or something like that it's been a long time so to have two people two white women in the space of a week say it for what the bbc have classed as you know acceptable reasons shall be allegedly you know it just doesn't make any sense to me and i completely understand why everybody is outraged and everybody's angry and they're just i but i think the first feeling i know for me especially was just confusion like why now of all times and and why is it not like you um the two journalists who actually dropped the n-word are the ones to apologize and the bbc have said nothing
0: yeah, it's like it's so weird that the BBC, which won't allow anyone to swear, won't allow anyone to do any of that because they're meant to be like professional, or whatever, is like, oh yeah, but we can say this word, it's fine, as if it doesn't have masses of history and present and etc. and meaning.
1: Exactly, and the fact that it happened twice in one week, like, what does that mean for the movement itself and for looking at the racism in? journalism and in institutions like the bbc it feels like it's very much we've promised to look into it and go you know two three steps forward but we're really not going anywhere and we're just gonna do whatever we see fit and decide to address it when we decide to address it you know
0: yeah and like in terms of it's almost like indicative of how things haven't changed because at the end of the day the media is still 94 percent white which is disappointing to the nation, which is 85% away, which is even worse when you consider the fact that these media institutions are, like, in London, in central London. Yeah. Which, and London is 40% BAME, so it's like, what's going on here? And you can see that in what's happening in the way that they're basically dropping the N word and just being like, lol, deal with it.
1: Yeah, it's it's like this isn't some small town in you know cornwall or yorkshire or somewhere like that like this is central london and the fact that we know that these scripts that these um journalists have to read go through so many different people's hands but the reason why it wasn't flagged is because all of those hands that it goes through are white hands
0: yeah exactly and they're like oh well it's in context it's like it's like no you could have just said m-word yeah everyone gets what you mean
1: it's not it's uh, it's just it's very confusing and i'm really nervous as to see how what the future's gonna not even the distant future but the near future like what else is gonna happen like what next
0: because that seems like a very significant thing for them to just break Mm -hmm. so yeah it's concerning to say the least but yeah that's an example of the media we'll come back to a bit more media soon but now we're going to move on to the arts more holistically So one of the first things that's been happening is that people have been pushing arts institutions to actually release their figures. This was a specific one of a hashtag pull up or shut up, Mm -hmm. which is basically telling, I think it's primarily theatres, but also arts institutions. To release the diversity figures for their staff so that we can have actual conversations rather than kind of being really opaque about it and us not knowing what the actual situation is. And some institutions have released it. I think the uh, young Vic and the old Vic released theirs. The old Vic's one was very bad. Mm, I can imagine. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, they had like no black people in senior management. And the mess, and it was really messy as well because their data was like really incomplete. I think only like. Fifty percent of staff actually took it, or something like that, and it just was a whole mess. Um, but it also shows the way in, in. That's also telling the way in which these theatres have haven't been thinking about it. They've just been like, "Oh, we'll just like do like a survey that only like fifty percent of the stuff will take." And sure, we'll just leave it at that. But
1: yeah, that's it's almost like, like yeah. making inclusion and diversity optional. I think yeah. that's the message. It kind of you
0: know puts across very much so i think and yeah so that's been one ex- one example of the ways in which this sort of thing has affected theatre and it's very telling that a lot of institutions have just stayed quiet yeah like as much as the old vic got lambasted for putting out their figures at least they put out figures mm-hmm. there's so many institutions like the big name institutions that just haven't released figures at all and you're like, are we not gonna do anything? Because you guys all did make anti-racism commitments. I read most of those anti-racism commitments that you alleged that you made. Mm-hmm. So, like...
1: <laughs> so I know that you can hear me right now. Like you know that you can see this, but the silence throughout this whole time has been the most telling thing. I know that even um, outside of the arts institutions, just on you know social media, whether it's somebody who is affiliated with the black community or whatever it's everybody's silence that people are questioning and looking at the most Mm -hmm. and that hasn't been a secret so for them to just not put anything up even if it does make them look bad it's almost like you brave that negativity for putting out these figures that are predominantly white and then make a call for action to actually do something about it but i I guess the ones who haven't put out any numbers, they're not willing to make that commitment to change, and they also don't want the scrutiny for it either
0: I think whether or even when you're not an institution when you're a person, a huge part of accountability is saying, This is where I've gone wrong, this is where I'm at, this is where I need to be like we can't have those conversations, we can't hold people accountable. we can't decide where we're gonna go if you're being really opaque about your data and about like what you're doing or not doing, mm. it's
1: clearly just not a conversation that they're willing to have.
0: Yeah, I and mean, it, it just is like so. All this was not all of this, obviously, but all this doing, doing uh, whatever on social media was just for nothing because you don't actually care,
1: <laughs> <You're> just... <laughs> yeah. But they don't want it's, to, it's like they don't want to come across like they don't care, and it's so easy to post a black square, that's why. There were so many people, like not even just, um, you know, there were black people as well who were in two minds about posting it because it's, it's just not enough. And that shouldn't really be something that you'd even have to question. Like, obviously, posting this black square is not going to be enough, but it's just a little nod to I'm committed to learning more about this. Like, there were so many brands who were like, oh, we don't know enough yet. But we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do this, we're gonna go away, we're gonna think about it, and only time will tell or not whether they do. But even normalizing saying that you don't know enough about something is something that is lacking. Yeah. And would have been more appreciated than just their silence on the matter at all, you know?
0: Yeah, I definitely I wish there was just more transparency because you're right, people would be so much kinder to you if you actually like, m- were saying you were going to make an effort as opposed to just kind of being indignant, and we'll get more onto being indignant instead of making an effort later. Mm. Um, <laughs> we'll come to that, yeah. Uh, another thing we were talking about, uh, or that I think is important to talk about here, is that especially on social media, um, there were a lot of call-outs and like, people saying we're going to mentor you and whatever in the wake of this because they essentially people realized that their circles were starkly white and that they actually needed to be proactive if they wanted black and other minority uh people to be involved in their industries so there's been lots of call outs and opportunities that went out in the first like few weeks and it's been interesting to see where those have gone and where those have haven't so Saskia, if you want to add anything there yeah like
1: I I completely support the whole call out thing because it's it's one of those situations where if you know that your circle is predominantly white and you're, you know, your this call out is to like counteract that, there's not really a more classy way to do it. So I get the intention behind it. It's kind of like, you know, I'm aware of this and I want to change this, so as long as the person who is, you know, doing the caller is actually willing to make those changes and actually listen to their black intern or mentory or whatever the word, what's the word when you're when you're not the mentor but the you're the person mentee. being mentored. Mentee. Why did I say mentory Anyway, mentee. <laughs> whatever. Um, but my issue is, is that um, there's I've seen a couple of you know, call-outs for interns um, who are BAME only. And the I don't think that they're expecting the response that they actually got because one of the, like, common responses seems to be, oh, we've been overwhelmed with all of these applicants or all of these people coming forward and we're sorry, but it's going to take us longer than we expected. And I think it just really goes to show how much white, people not even just white people but these institutions think that um the reason why they don't have black people in their institution is because they're not interested as opposed to them not actually being able to get a foot in the door yeah and this is really kind of opening their eyes to that and i don't think a lot of them know how to handle it they've it's like walking around in a bubble but you don't know that you're in a bubble until someone comes along and pops it and then you're like, oh my God, there's so much air out here. Like what the hell's going on? <laughs> um, so it's it's a hard one, but I I don't know. I just hope it's the, how can I put this? I, I hope that they go beyond the temporary internship or the temporary like mentor program and start to really look at how much Black people need to be ingrained in the, you know, actual fabric of that institution and not just as a passing fancy.
0: Yeah. And I think the thing you could definitely see, like what we were talking about before was, you can tell the people who have put thought into it and who know what they're doing and <laughs> the ones who have just kind of said it. Because like there's people like Nika Shukla um, and the, I think it's the Good Literary Agency, I think that's what they're called. Yeah. Um, where they've been doing this sort of work for a while. They know that it's difficult. They know what it actually entails and they actually are actually, like, working in a way that works for people as opposed to just being like, I'm oh, to well, just put a thing out and they'll, like, DM me. And it's like, you have to understand that you have to actually put in the work to figure out how to do this thing properly. You can't just kind of do it on a whim. And you can't also, another thing is that you can't invite people of colour or other marginalised people into spaces which are unsafe for them. like yeah because there are certain institutions which are very hostile towards like people of color Mm -hmm. and it's like if even if you put a call out and people know they're hostile we're not like we're not um on everyone's kind of hip to it so if you put this out you're basically going to invite someone into an environment which is extremely hostile for them so unless you do the work to actually improve the environment and the culture etc of the institution. Which a lot of these people aren't willing to do, then you're just inviting them in to essentially suffer for however long they're there, and it, you just end up with loads of burnout. Like there's lots of industries which basically for this, this being one of many reasons, but for this reason, have a lot of burnout, particularly of women, particularly of um women of color, etc. Because essentially it is just so exhausting to be in that industry consistently because it is such an unsafe space for them to exist.
1: And I think part of that is everything now is so, like everybody wants some, because racism is not something that just happened last week or on May 25th when, you know, George Floyd was killed. It's not something, people are tired and this is something that people have been carrying around with them for a very long time. So I think some institutions who are trying to make the effort, I say, you know, in inverted comments, whatever, to um to change the scene, are looking for quick fixes because that's what they think that we as black people are looking for. And I can't speak for every other black person, but I know that I would personally prefer it if these organizations went away for, you know, six months to a year to really tear down the walls that they built and then rebuild them back up from you know from the ground up with us involved. I'd much appreciate that than just this quick fix internship that's going to, um, you know, like you said, result in burnout or bring me into this hostile situation where, okay, it's great. I've got a foot in the door, but what's the point of getting your foot in a door in a house that's on fire? You know, like (laughs) it's true. Like, don't bring me in here just to burn or, you know, it's, you have to change the environment. You have to change everything that is wrong with your institution otherwise i'm just gonna be like almost like a cow to slaughter like there's there's after me there's going to be another one and it's not going to change the outcome will always be the same
0: yeah exactly um so we're gonna come with a few like examples of this sort of thing that we can talk about to kind of almost move it out the abstract into the specific one of these is the Tate written uh in terms of so we're talking about arts institutions and stuff like that, in relation to BLM, was that the Tate Britain basically they had a uh, in the in their basement there's like a restaurant um, where they had a mural uh, from 1927 mm-hmm. that was this des- and this room is described as the most amusing room in Europe, mm-hmm. and they <laughs> yeah <laughs> their wall had a mural which had a bunch of like oh people like in horses and carriages, but then a bunch of them were dragging slaves. and up Child this, slaves. Yeah, child slaves. To this day, like, that is, the Rex Whistler restaurant has that mural there. No one has ever thought to do any, or no, like, at, or no one at the Tate has ever done anything about it, has ever even changed the description. Like, they didn't even do the, like, you know, the very, um quick and easy oh these don't represent our current values etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah like they didn't even do that and, and ugh, yeah. this is
1: what I mean by tearing it down and starting from the beginning because if you I mean the Tate is a well respected institution all over the world like to have something like that I mean to have it in the basement as well I think is quite um like ironic as well um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know how can you sit there and oh, we're we're anti-racist. We're gonna put all of these like you know in our mission statement, in our ethos, our values, blah blah blah, and then have something as horrible as that in your basement? Like it's, you know what I mean? It's, re- it's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah. And it's like they've mo- they've removed what they've done now is they've removed the description because the description used to read um, the uh, what did it used to read. Something about being like basically the most, yeah, the most amusing room in Europe. Um, And that's all well and good to remove this, to remove that description and to kind of change it to be like, to give more context. But even then you're like, hmm, this still feels icky. Like, I'm not sure if this is the sort of thing where you can just be like, oh, here's the context now. It's fine now
1: yeah, I I don't think adding context or removing the description makes the slightest bit of difference because it's, this is in their restaurant. It's not like it's in a gallery where you're displaying the artist's work and that artist just happened to be really problematic. And you know, this is a place where people come to eat and to relax and dine. And if you're basking in that ambiance and that's what's on the wall, it's, it just says a lot more than just Oh yeah we've taken the con- like, we've taken the description down, and it doesn't change the context
0: yeah, and also the thing again with this specific one is this is not like, oh, it's a mural that's been there since seventeen eighty whatever when slavery was still a thing. Mm. This mural was painted in the nineteen twenties. slavery had been over in Britain, mainland Britain for over a hundred years in the mm. colonies for nearly a hundred years there is this is long after slavery, so there yeah. is no the th- that thing has been there for less than a century. There is no reason <laughs> for you There is no context in which that ever makes sense except if you're exactly. a if you're deeply if you're intending to be deeply racist and cruel because you could have you could so easily have a little mural with a bunch of like horses and whatever in your high class restaurant without having black slave children just. For fun? Like, I don't understand why they're there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, English, you know, old England, they love to commemorate that, what they call a simpler time, you know, them with their white wigs on and all their outfits and the horses, whatever. Why why put the black slave children in there? Why? Like you said, it's 1927 when this painting was made. Like, it it doesn't make any sense. And it speaks to their character and it speaks to you know, the kind of things that they value and the kind of things that
0: they don't. I think in a way, this mural is maybe the most British racism. (laughs) In the sense that (laughs) it's there and we're just going to pretend it's not there. And we're just going to chill and we're going to do our thing and we're going to just like enjoy ourselves. We're going to pretend this racism isn't there. And ignore how this affects the people that it directly affects and just be like, oh, it's just there, you know, it's just part of our history, you know, it's just there. And we're just... Like It's a very specifically British thing to be like, to have this race vile racist thing there and just kind of ignore it or at least ignore the racism of it and just be like, I... oh, that's just an amusing room. It's just weird, not deeply violent.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you because that's literally how you know racism is in britain it's like oh like we all know it's there but we don't like to talk about it and if you call us out on it especially in the media we're gonna deny it and say that britain welcomes everyone um you know we it's just oh my god i just can't i just can't even like it's just too much it's too much
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah so uh that was, by the way, that was um, only really initially brought up like in the past like month or so by uh, this arts criticism website called The White Pube. Uh, they're a good follow on Instagram and read anyway. Very silly name, but um, yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> That only became a thing after they started talking about social media like a month ago, bearing in mind that thing has been there for nearly 100 years. Um, yeah, and
1: can I just quickly add to that? Brace yourself, because how many more things like that are there now while even while we're having this conversation that people aren't even aware of until somebody, you know, comes along, takes a picture of it and then puts it on Instagram.
0: Like, yeah, it's
1: an ongoing battle.
0: Can you can you imagine, like, I know this is a bit of a division, but can you imagine, like, you're going to the tape oh, someone invites you down to have, like, a dinner there and you just look and you're seeing black children in Slate. Like, imagine... Like Honestly. us as black people, if someone invited us down there to, and we saw that, like,
1: I don't know how I'd react. I don't even, I can't even say that I'd. Like, I don't know. I really don't know how I'd react. I'd probably have to look twice. I'd probably think I was imagining it. Because yeah. even though I know how racist Britain is, like, I just not so blatant. I just wouldn't. Mm. I'd just be
0: gobsmacked. It would be hard to process. <laughs> You'd be it really like, would. What?
1: But you know, it's funny because on their Instagram page, if you, you know, swipe to the next couple of pictures, there's just a group of white diners laughing, enjoying their dinner, enjoying their tea or whatever it is that they're eating and drinking, and the picture's just in the background, and I'm just like, How? No one even no one's even acknowledging it.
0: Yeah, I I uh yeah.
1: And this it's is
0: so weird.
1: It's so weird. And I can't tell, I don't know if I'd be happier if it was um, something that people went out of their way to go to this place for. I know that sounds a little bit uh, like, what is she talking about? But <laughs> it's not even, like, they're not even acknowledging it. I don't know why that bothers yeah, yeah, me so much. Know. Do you know what I mean? It,
0: it's, it's so insidious to be like, because that means it's accepted as normal. Because if it was like, oh, this is a whole like, this is a racist artifact that is like kind of everyone no, makes a show I of it and it. Yeah. yeah, because like, it's exactly it's like what you said before. The way this is treated, there are probably other places which have similar stuff. Mm. Because there is no and obviously like there have p- probably been people who have kicked up a stir about this before, but there's been no big public outcry around things like this yeah so there's clear there's no way this is the only one. there are definitely other dining halls and exclusive places this one is not exclusive Bean army that yeah. kind of place which just has this casually extreme i mean because it's like there's a lot of stuff there's um there was, I can't remember specifically but there was this like symbol um which was used as like an honor that basically showed like a white angel like um, killing or whatever in a black demon, like a, a demon which is specifically shown as being a black person like a black African person mm, Um, great. and like there's so many of these things which are just left unsaid or yeah. at least left unsaid by white people and you're like mm, look, it's right there it's right there, how did you not notice this? Why did it take George Floyd dying for you to notice this? Exactly like, I
1: mean, it I get what you're saying. It's exactly kind of the same with the rugby song. I'm not a rugby fan, but I read that the, the song, what's the one that they sing? I completely swing forgot low, it, but... Swing Low,
0: Sweet Chariot.
1: Yes, and all the racist implications with that song. It's the same as, you know, us walking through Bristol or Trafalgar Square or whatever and walking past these statues. Plantation
0: something. There's a plantation something in central London. I can't remember. It's called Plantation Square or something
1: yeah it's exactly the same as that that people consider as normal and it's not like you go there specifically for that and that's even worse because it's normalized it's part of your everyday like they wouldn't miss it if it was gone but then they still made no moves to move it because yeah it doesn't affect them in the same way that it affects us
0: and ugh, that is it's just scary <laughs> yeah So, speaking of another institution, um, which is the last one we're going to talk about today, um, is the Southbank Centre. So, the Southbank Centre has had, like, is doing a lot of redundancies and is trying to reshape how it is because of the financial issues caused by COVID-19 and some people would argue issues that have been within the Southbank Centre for a longer time than that. So, recently there was a um, petition and an open letter um, called Sa- Save Our South Bank. You can find it literally on SaveOurSouthBank dot com, and there have been a bunch of protests outside the South Bank to do with this, which is basically has say accused the South Bank of not being managed well, and accused them of being incredibly unimaginative in finding their solutions for the death for the amount of money they've lost, mm-hmm. and it's basically saying that they need to do better and they need to um actually find a more create someone said literally, this is not a very creative solution from an art centre. Like <laughs> they <laughs> because they basically their response was according to this the say the Savar um South Bank, they said that basically one of the thing potent- things which have been floated was to cut down their uh, arts the art- cut down their what they're doing as an art centre to basically be ten percent internal art stuff. And ninety percent reserved for rental ridiculous. um which is like you're an art center that seems ludicrous, mm. and they're gonna apparently, according to these uh, again the same letter, going to act like a start up in a sense, which is just a very weird way to approach it, and it's a very like business minded way to approach an arts institution which doesn't make sense, but it just also you can read the full letter for the full context. But the allegations against them seem like they're going in a direction which is really detrimental. Um yeah. but more specifically as to how this relates to Black Lives Matter, is that in within that letter, uh there were two uh there were claims which were related to the um to them and Black Lives Matter. So the first one was that the South Bank needs to adhere to its anti racism statement by actively protecting the diversity of its workforce um, senior management have chosen to proceed with their program of redundancies without taking into account the disproportionate impact on BAME staff because a lot of the staff getting redundancies from South Bank from a bunch of other places are um, lower down in the hierarchy of the institution and that usually is disproportionately BAME. Mm-hmm. That is obviously seen as a, that is obviously a problem yeah. if they're talking about being anti-racist. And uh, Tessica, if you want to give me any thoughts on that
1: yeah I mean it's just one of those things, isn't it where i mean when they hire um BAME staff and they're in you know those <clears throat> sorry, they're in those kind of roles that tend to be the most dispensable when you know budget cuts need to be made to not consider the two of them together and think, okay, instead of think coming at it from a business angle and not really coming at it from a way that's like, okay, how can we you know, balance these numbers almost? How can we do what we need to do in terms of like business and finance-wise, but also stick to what we claim to be our anti-racism kind of ethos? Like, it, it's just typical to me. Like, it's, it's not surprising at all.
0: Yeah, and this isn't just like a South Bank thing. This is a lot of institutions. It yeah. feels like the first... Because uh, we can take this to journalism, for example. A lot of people a lot of um, people colour and other marginalised people who work in journalism do not have staff roles. So whenever a website, the first thing to go from a website is their freelance budget, always, mm-hmm. almost always. From a publication, the first thing to go is their freelance budget. Yep. And so that always means that uh, people of colour, other marginalised people have way less opportunities Mm -hmm. immediately, straight out, because of the way that these institutions are fundamentally structured so that people of colour are the most dispensable.
1: And that's the thing, like, you know, if there were more, like, black people, Asian people, whatever, in these staff roles, there wouldn't, like, the numbers wouldn't be so disproportionate. But it's not something, I, I don't know, I don't even know why, it's just not something that seems to occur to them. And then, you know, when people are, making these claims and then their responses are so you can just see their responses are so uninformed
0: like yeah like um the response to this first claim was uh, the south bank center absolutely stands by its anti-racism statement and will continue the ongoing discussions with the bame staff network to create a powerful diversity and equality action plan our redundancy programme will be subject to an equality impact assessment we will rebuild our organization in the future with diversity and equality absolutely central to our recovery
1: Mm, I believe it when I see
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's very like, it just all feels very loose. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, um, we love diversity, guys. We're not going to give you any specific numbers or anything like that, but we just love it. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's like so amazing. And, like,
0: <laughs> they already, they already talked um in that SOS list, they talked about how according to some statistics, the South Park Centre is 20% BAME when London is 40%. Um. And Lambeth, which the Southbank Centre is in, is forty-eight percent BI. So, like, what's what's going on? So, this <laughs> seems very, it's very whatever to be like, oh yeah, we're anti-racist, but actually, we don't hire um, people of colour at all.
1: Yeah, especially not in a staff role. Like, that's asking yeah. too much. Clearly, we'll,
0: we'll we'll bring you on front of house, or we'll bring you on on a zero-hour contract, but we won't give you a like salaried role.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, when we need to make cuts, you're the first to go, sorry.
0: Yeah, we have the least secure contracts, while CEOs are racking up, all re- oh, not CEOs, I can't remember what the actual titles are in terms of institutions, mm. but they're like directors and the bigwigs are yeah. earning ridiculous amounts of money. And all these freelance, all these uh, front of house staff um, and all the uh, people who are like, have really vulnerable contracts are basically just gone. uh, And those are disproportionately working class, disproportionately disabled, disproportionately. You get the idea. Yeah,
1: and they get away with it as well because I think when we look at you know racism and what it really means, especially like it's very um, one-dimensional, and they kind of hang on to stuff like what like we were talking about earlier off podcast. Sorry, guys, um, about <laughs> BAME itself, and they'll have I don't know two people from Asia, somewhere in Asia, maybe China, maybe Japan, whatever. And that will be their quota for, like, all BAME. And they don't feel the need to hire any, like, black people or Asian people, like, other Asian people, because they have those numbers. Yeah. And it's, and they they won't see that as racist, though. That's not, that's not discrimination to them. That's not racism to them. That's just, like, another day at the office, almost. Yeah. And so when stuff like this happens and they're like, oh no, like we haven't. And if you read their anti-racism statement, they probably in their own eyes, because of the way it's worded, haven't broken any, you know, of those rules that they've listed, but that's simply because of the way it's written. And because it's always going to be in favor of everybody else instead of everybody else. (laughs) If
0: that makes sense. I think there's another, yeah, I get you. There's another telling thing with the Southpac center one. So there was another claim, um, efforts to address, structure racism, and respond to the crisis of underrepresentation have been met by disturbing instances of racism, including one in which a board member stated she did not believe in victimhood and asked them if they were proud to be people of colour and proud to work at the South Park Centre. So those are obviously very loaded questions and statements. Yeah. And for an institution which claims to care about anti-racism, it's very weird to have a director saying that they didn't believe in victimhood. Um, So the response is... Even more telling. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we should read yeah. that out.
0: <laughs> Their response is We think it misleading not to make it clear that the board member who made these comments in the context of an internal discussion between the Bay AME network and the executive team is herself a woman of colour. 25% of our board are people of colour, and we continue to seek this to increase this percentage as we recruit new members.
1: I think it's important to say that by people of color they mean like oh you know one part Lithuanian or <laughs> two parts <laughs> I don't know Italian. They're really not talking. There is no way they're talking about like a dark-skinned woman here, a dark-skinned black woman. There's no way.
0: Yeah, and it's and like even and like even if they were, which the wording is very loose, so I. Like, even if they were hypothetically because obviously we don't know who this person is Mm. and who the person's allegations are about it doesn't matter like if if the one black person you have at your company not the one but is saying is saying things which go against your alleged anti-racism you can't use them to deflect you can't just be like like what sort of anti-racist are you if whenever you're accused of racism, you go, oh, see, we have black people, or see, we have black people, see, we have people of colour, like, the yeah. thing she said about not believing in victimhood, it doesn't matter if it's a person of colour or not a person of colour saying it, that still is a deep problem and deeply an issue which you need to address. You cannot just be like, oh, we have people of colour, so clearly anything a person of colour says, uh, on the racism is fine even when every other person of colour in the institution disagrees with them. Like
1: Exactly. It's almost like, oh, can the one black person in the building please come to reception and deal with this thing that we don't want to deal with? And it's just it's, it's like it's just another way for them to even if this is a black woman. Like yeah. you said, this black woman could be she could be anyone. Like she might she might not even share the same views. I mean there are black people who Vote for Trump, for goodness' sake! They're not someone I'd want to have dinner with, you know. <laughs> like, it's it's just not enough. And yeah,
0: it's yeah, it's it's just the thing of you could find a black person who believes in anything. Like, I could find one black person who believes slavery didn't happen. Like, Kanye <laughs> <Can't you> West. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it's very it's ridiculous to be like. He's a one because they are a person of color, any criticism made on the company's anti racism or lack thereof is defunct, like no yeah, I just yeah,
1: and that's their um, problem, and they'll always continue to do stuff like that because you know, if they always just have that one black person on the board they're they're always going to come across issues like this because it's not enough just to have one black person, and the sooner they get that into their heads, like the less they'll look as embarrassing as they do with these claims and responses
0: yeah and it's just it's just very it's very indicative of these messages not necessarily sinking in and mm. i think what's maybe important to do as well <laughs> as much as we talk about all this is talk about the people who are doing things right and are at least doing something um and yeah. one of the things I wanted to specifically highlight, um, was the Fringe of Colour films, um, which is going on currently throughout August. Which is um so Fringe of Colour was an initiative or not initiative, a uh, thing started in twenty eighteen. Started as a spreadsheet by uh Just Bro. Uh they um made a spreadsheet of all the different like shows of people of colour at the fringe that they could find. And so just as a document for different people to use, to look at and actually find people colour at the Fringe, because we've both been to the Fringe. It is mm. not the most diverse <laughs> festival.
1: No, it's, it's not. <laughs> leave, I, you know, let's leave that one there. But yes. Yeah.
0: We'll get to that later. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, maybe that's for another podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so then like in 2019... Uh, that moved on to like a ticket initiative in 2020 this is now like its own uh little not little but its own kind of festival um filling that void um and actually like a platform which is its own thing to kind of highlight these specific films and voices so it's people be like no no okay we're done with you institutions You don't actually care about us we're making our own thing and this is what it is mm. Which I think is really laudable, and it's because it's like if these institutions aren't going to help us, then we can't rely on them, and we just have to do things like
1: yeah. That's definitely one of the things that I'm excited about as well, because I I like I said I don't know what it is that's different this time when it comes to the whole like BLM movement. I don't know what it is that has shifted, but more and more people and spaces are being exposed for what they are. And I think a lot of people's response to that is to create or to boycott or to, you know, just, if you don't want me there, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to find my own space and I'm going to make it work for me. And that is the kind of stuff that I'm really excited to see moving forward.
0: For example, in publishing, which is, Saskia, obviously your specialty, uh, (laughs) (laughs) is... There's this new uh, publishing... I think there might be more than one new one, but the most recent one I've seen is, like, Hajar Press, which is Mm -hmm. this um, new publishing house which is uh, run by people of colour and, like, has a specific goal of promoting people of colour and publishing them in a way that... in an equitable way, in a way that doesn't happen. Because we can't get into this right now, but people of colour and publishing are notoriously paid way less, especially in the UK. Um, there was this whole publishing paid me hashtag and you saw how this different the amount of the paychecks given to white publishers, white authors and non-white authors and it was Mm -hmm. really wild go look up publishing paid me for more details on that
1: yeah the publishing industry is i know we can't get into it properly now but it is one of those industries that is so analog and just so behind on so many things which is crazy because when you think of storytelling you think of like you know, adventure, excitement, but then also there's the political side of things where it's forever looking forward. So to kind of be around all of that and not really take any of those like just those diverse like stories and experiences on board and apply them to your whole like business is just it's just a bit baffling to me. It has a long yeah. way to go and I really don't have much hope for it, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> we'll we see, see what
1: happens. We'll Saskia, maybe
0: you can single handedly change it. Um,
1: sure.
0: know. all in a day, like... <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think yeah, another thing which has happened during lockdown um is this show at the Royal, which is run by the Royal Court, uh, produced by Toby Tarang. and um, there's been a bunch of different, there were a bunch of different performers in it. They did like these performances over Zoom, um, and it's called uh, My White Best Friend and Other Letters Left Unsaid. It tackled a lot of racial issues and had a lot of different. Uh, people of different races in the show and Mm -hmm. he's just like the sort of thing which is really important to have and to just be like, look at this incredible theatre that can be created when you let people tell their stories like, yes, yeah
1: that is definitely like the message to to take away from that I think, just giving people free reign, edition, when it comes to creating art and stuff, to me that there's way, way, way too many politics involved that just really shouldn't be there, that just hinders people's like self-expression so i love to see things like this where people just feel totally free to say their truth and make it beautiful
0: yeah exactly so, um, so.
1: before we wrap up Taya, i'd like because i think it would be good if we were to share some of the things that we've done in you know terms of supporting the movement so is there Go one on. thing that, like you've kind of seen or decided to adopt like since this you know started up again
0: oh yeah i gave me like something that's something that we've changed in a sense um oh this is going to be a very specific thing like to my writing but one specific thing is that especially in the past month and i guess it's not just to do with writing but in a broader sense is to look at the look at what things say in terms of their structure and their form in the sense of so for example there are um there we go there's a film which I'm writing a review for right now mm-hmm. which in the dialogue and in the text of the film it says it's ostensibly anti-racist but the way it presents the way it, like in the in the camera work and in the narrative structuring and all that stuff the way that presents um the, its indigenous people is deeply racist, okay, and so i the thing one thing I've probably come from away from recently is to look less to not just look at the intent and what their stated intent is and look at what the actual effect of a thing is and look at what the actual structure of a thing says about it because you can have a thousand people who say they aren't racist and they still run a systemically racist institution, yeah, like even the metropolitan police who Every by every metric, by every statistic they're Institutionally Racist will still come on TV and say we're not racist. Like, yeah. I've learned to kind of move past looking at people's, what they say and what they're, even if they're saying it in good faith, looking past what their intentions are, necessarily, and looking at the actual content and substance of their actions. I think that's been a big thing for me. I, and I, I recommend good. people adopt.
1: Definitely. Like, I mean, what actions words like they're kind of just they're all just things there's all especially when it's something when it's a film or um an institution there's always going to be something that you can look at that goes beyond their outward appearance and how they want to come across and you will find that thing that is actually how they do come across and then that's what you should base your you know decisions on so i can i think that's a really good one
0: so about you what's your thing
1: mine other than literally like making a mental note of everything that people say and using it to judge them later on (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) keep the receipts keep
1: the receipts exactly um mine is not really anything to do with my work it's more into where i spend my money um i actually wrote an article about this a couple of weeks ago on my blog about buying with a conscience and i don't mean no offence to vegans and stuff, but I don't mean like not eating meat and buying clothes from, um, you know, like recycled clothing and stuff because I'm just really not that great of a person to adopt. (laughs) (laughs) I admire everybody else who does, but it's just not me. Um, But I mean like buying, like I buy a lot of makeup. I think a lot of girls do, a lot of guys do these days as well. Um, So it's not buying from brands who... I don't know what it is about the makeup industry, but it's just, it it perpetuates this, um, like, this ideal of how women should be, how women shouldn't be. And a lot of, like, young girls and everybody, like, they look up to that. So I'm boycotting makeup brands who, it's just clear that they don't support dark-skinned women and who only use them in campaigns for performative reasons. And, um, you know, they don't really care so much about the well-being of all movements like blm like the sa lauder company i'm going to call them out i've given up on i don't know if you know anything about makeup but mac and um kind yeah. of smashbox are very popular brands and they have all like donated to the trump administration and so yeah i've decided to boycott makeup brands that don't support black women yeah that's where I've started and it's a real shame as well because like I mean no it's not a shame at all actually because there are so many other makeup brands out there and not even just makeup like there are other businesses there are other places that you can buy from who you know morally they're just better Um, and when you yeah. look you find some really like awesome things so just kind of looking a bit outside of myself and trying to spend my money on things and putting it where it actually matters
0: yeah so, yeah. if people wanted to find you and kind of the stuff you've been writing about talking about your, uh, your writing any of that kind of stuff where would they go?
1: They can find me on SincerelySaskia.com as well as VoiceMag Yep
0: yeah. um, and we'll add that in the uh, show notes yeah. So, if you want to talk to uh, us at Voice about anything it's at UK on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and if you wanna like see what the contributors are doing, what they're watching, all that sort of stuff, it's at voice.extra on Instagram. If you wanna read the articles we are writing, see the um, interviews we're doing, stuff like that, it's uh, voicemag.uk. And if you wanna see the other podcast, which is a bunch of different interviews with artists, um, that the Voicemag podcast, and, if you want, and please donate to Voice and support us with the, with the links on our website for shows like that and all that kind of thing. And please promote with your friends. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your enemies. Tell the <laughs> random person on the street, you know, why not share the love and all that. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for being with me, Saskia, today.
1: Thanks very much, Terry. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thanks to Kevin McLeod for letting us use Shaving Mirror. You can find his stuff on incompetech.com.